University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 15. We'll get back to that in just here a second. Last week, we began a new six-week series focused on the peculiarities of UBC. Many faith communities want to think about what is known, practice what is familiar, and love those that only fit into their comfort zone. Yet we as a faith community have said that we want to think critically, to live creatively, and to love continually. And this makes us uncommon and distinctive. University Baptist Church of Baton Rouge, we are a faith community that thinks critically. But what does that mean? And what does that look like? When I think of thinking critically, one company comes to mind for me. It's Apple. And I know all the Samsung and PC people in here just rolled their eyes. So bear with me as we watch this quick video. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The troublemakers. The round pegs in the square holes. The ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Nine years after being booted out of the company that he co-founded, Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1996. And the company was in absolute shambles. So Jobs and his creative team put together their heads to find a new way of re-energizing the company around their creativity and innovation that they had become known for. And the results is the Think Different campaign that was initiated by this The Crazy Ones ad. The ad really taps into our emotions and psyche by using figures like Pablo Picasso and Mahatma Gandhi and Amelia Earhart. It is an invitation to think critically leading to inspiration, innovation, and stepping out into what is impossible. This is an invitation to step back to the precipice of something new and something unknown. So let's continue this conversation we started last week of what it looks like to think critically by looking at the gospel text in Luke chapter 18, verse 15. Luke declares this, People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to them and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You see, the more and more I read the Gospels, the more and more I believe that Jesus is completely unsafe. 
Jesus was a threat to the first century way of life, to society's boundaries, to their political constructs, as well as to the religious system and their practices. And Luke chapter 18, 15 through 17 shows us that Jesus takes our assumptions about God and turns them upside down, but rather he takes them in the way that we've turned them upside down and turns them right side up. Jesus epitomeo, which expresses strong disapproval. He rebuked, he, he censored, he spoke sternly against the disciples. Jesus just gave the verbal equivalent of a smack on the rear end to the disciples. Rebuke is the same word that Jesus used when he commanded the demons to be quiet and to come out of a man. When he commanded the sickness out of a dying girl, when he calls the disciples to not be afraid as they cross the Sea of Galilee in a storm. Whatever they've done, Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that they have misunderstood God. They understood that children weren't worth anything to God. And Jesus shakes up their foundation, their theological assumptions, where they had devalued children Jesus tells them that God values children. You see, this would have been radical in Jesus' day because children weren't held in high regard. Children were viewed oftentimes on the same level as servants and slaves. Uh, children were often fragile creatures, and in Jesus' day, the, the life mortality rate of children was not very high. If you were a little girl in the first century, you were basically a piece of property to your father to auction you off to the highest bidder. But is, is the case 99.9% .9 of the time of how society values people, God is to the contrary. Jesus shows us that God values children. Jesus values children enough to socially embarrass his disciples in front of a crowd. And he values children enough to say that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus has just declared that the kingdom of God is even for the most small and insignificant of people. Jesus continues to take our perspective of power, who is in the in and out crowd, and he turns it right side up. He shows us that God values the sick, the outcast, the poor, the non-religious, and the so-called sinners. And now he shows that God has deep value for children. I wonder how God would rebuke the church today of who we have determined is welcome and unwelcome, of who we have said is in and out. I wonder how often, like the disciples, we think that we have Jesus figured out and we base our faith off of these assumptions. As we investigate the Gospels, and more specifically the Gospel of Luke, Jesus again and again shows us something contrary to the religion and more specifically to the religion that has become Christianity. Instead of laws and rules and regulations, Jesus has invited us to fall headfirst into the transforming power of God's love. It's not laws that change people, Jesus declared with his teaching and ministry. It is the radiant love of God. Jesus did not come to start a new religious institution, but instead he came to invite us into a new way of thinking and living. And Jesus invites us into this kingdom with his life and ministry and teachings, Jesus has showed us this new way of the kingdom of God. And Jesus challenges us constantly to rethink our assumptions about God, about ourselves, and about the world. Our text this morning is, is yet another opportunity where Jesus shows us to change our way of thinking. 
Jesus is going to teach us that living life in a journey with God is not about controlling and managing a religious set of life rules. Instead, Jesus is going to show us simply to let go of our assumptions, let go of our control. And it starts here in verse 17 where he says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. Jesus uses a very interesting word here. He says, unless you receive the kingdom, the word here is dekome. It means to receive or to welcome, to take on upon someone's self. So what exactly does that mean? How do we welcome the kingdom of God? How do we take the kingdom upon ourselves? But unless we receive it this way, Jesus says, we may never enter into the kingdom, which begs the question, how does a child receive anything? Think about a child for just a second. A child is powerless and weak. I mean, with the exception of dads who have toddlers out there, they're at that perfect height and that perfect angle that can even cripple the strongest of men among us. Aubriana, our three-year-old, has the strength of seven grizzly bears. Yet a child can't make decisions on their own. They're completely powerless to the decisions of their parents. When a child is born, he or she cannot vacate the womb, go build a stick shelter and start hunting for prey. No, they're powerless. A child is also dependent. A newborn must depend on his mother's milk. A toddler won't be driving down the interstate, especially in Baton Rouge anytime soon, so they must depend on their father or mother to go and buy food and clothes. Even a teenager, and I know that they have it all figured out, because we all did at that age, we must depend on our parents for shelter and direction. I mean, when you're talking about diapers and butt ointment and health insurance and clothes and food and shelter and protection, so many other things, a child is dependent on his or her parents. And what makes me smile is that when Jesus utters these words, he experienced this. Because God, in all of God's sense of humor, chose to enter into human history in the most fragile of ways by being born to a 14-year-old illiterate virgin and her hesitant fiancé. And so Jesus experienced the dependence of parents. And so with great joy in his heart about these precious children, Jesus says that unless you receive the kingdom as one of these children, you will never enter into it. You see, a child is dependent on their pendants, so he or she must accept their weakness for the confidence of his or her mother. He must submit to the will of the one who brought life into this world. You see, unless we receive the kingdom in submission and dependence, and in our weakness compared to the greatness of God's kingdom, we may never enter into it. Our two little girls could not be the opposite when it comes to sleeping habits. Um, Madison will fall asleep in a drop of a hat, and then she's up first thing in the morning ready to accomplish things of her day. Aubriana is the opposite. Aubriana has to talk to herself for 45 minutes before she falls asleep, and then you almost have to wake her up most mornings. But when Madison was three years old and we were getting used to her sleeping in the big girl bed, that was a very trying time in our life as parents. Because the child would literally sit there and scream at you that she was not tired and she would scream and she would scream to the point where she would literally fall asleep standing up. It was a very frustrating time as parents where she would just bellow her defiance and then literally fall over onto the couch because she couldn't stand any longer. It was precious and it was absolutely infuriating at the same time 
but she was convinced that she knew what she knew and she knew was right. You see, unfortunately, as we hear this cute saying from Jesus that we must receive the kingdom as a child, if we're honest, most of us reject that notion. I believe we reject that notion for two reasons. One is self-sufficiency, and the second is an obsession with certainty. It's simple. We are a people who believe that because we can and we will, we have everything that we need. I'd like to put myself up as being the most self-sufficient person I know. I, I've accomplished much in my life. I have a beautiful wife that I've somehow convinced to marry me and trick her each day to stay into this marriage. I have two beautiful children. I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and maybe pursuing another degree later in life. I came from a family of opportunity and wealth and experience. We went places. We did things. I've traveled the world. I've dug and built homes in third world countries. I have built water filtration systems in other places. I can rig a rock climbing system on the side of a mountain. I can build a shelter and fire out of nothing. Me, caveman, do much. And on top of all this, I have a confidence that can shake a mountain. Do you think that I don't have a notion towards self-sufficiency? Do you think that I think that everything can come easy to me? that I know what's best for me, and so do you. So do we all, whether we want to realize it or not. If we just pause and can name all the things that we are responsible for, all the things that we have done, all the things that we have created with our, our thoughts and our hands and our resources, and just think about that, think about all that you've achieved in your workplace, all that you've achieved in this community, all that you've achieved in your family life, and even in our culture, and technologies built around us to believe that we are self-sufficient. Apps are designed to make life easier, more efficient, more self-sufficient. Yet the irony is, as our technology and our cultural advancement, is that we believe that we are more self-sufficient, but we actually are becoming more and more dependent on technology to actually make us function in life. Self-sufficiency creates within us a desire to run away from weakness and dependence and submission on something or someone else. And whether we realize it or not, this pours over into our faith life and lack thereof. In fact, self-sufficiency kicks into high gear when conflicts arise, when shape and life-altering situations present themselves. And why not? Because we've got this. I was driving down the interstate uh, recently in North Carolina, mind you, not in Louisiana. And my eye caught one of those bumper stickers that's so long that you have to drive really close to read it, and you're probably going to get in an accident if you read the whole paragraph. And the bumper sticker read, I'm the God-fearing, gun-toting, wave-flagging conservative that you were warned about. But that's not all. I saw another bumper sticker that recently read, pro-life, pro-gun, pro-God. And yet another gem said, I cling to my Bible and to my gun, and I'm not afraid to use either one to defend my liberties. But then there is the counter-argument I read on another bumper sticker that said, like Jesus would own a handgun and vote Republican. Then there is the sarcastic one that said, I'm a bitterly gun owner loosely clinging to my religious values. I thought that was a bit more honest than most. In his book, The Restless Tenderness of Jesus, the great Burning Manning wrote, it's always true to some extent that we make our images of God. It's even truer that our image of God makes us. Eventually we become like the God we imagine. You see, the other reason that we reject this notion of receiving the kingdom as a child is because we are obsessed with certainty. 
The mentality to know, to be strong, to be independent, drives our every heart and soul to make every type of decision of what is right and what is wrong, what life is supposed to be about, what we pursue, how we survive and how we live, and what we know about God. More often than not, than we care to admit, we have made God in our image and not the other way around. We have shaped our theology to fit into our worldview, our political opinions, our country allegiance, our economic desires, and our beckoning for comfort. Peter ends in his great book, The Sin of Certainty, writes, Correct thinking provides a sense of certainty. Without it, we fear that faith is on life support at best, dead and buried at worst. And who wants a dead and dying faith? So this fear of losing a handle on certainty leads us to a preoccupation with correct thinking, making sure familiar beliefs are defended and supported at all costs, aligning faith in God and certainty about what we believe and needing to be right in order to maintain a healthy faith. These do not make for healthy faith in God. American Christianity is guilty far too often of determining who is in and who is out. What parts of the Bible work for our life? What parts of the Bible work for pushing on other people? How many times did Jesus butt head with, with the Pharisees because of their conclusions and preconceived notions about the law and religion and what God would have us be and do? How many times in our lifetime, in the last decade, in the last few weeks, have we experienced this a religious people group who said that they are so-called believing in biblical truths, declaring that they have the answers to all things, that they know what is truth, and unless you believe in specifically what they are saying, that you are hell-bound. Again and again, unless you look like me, dress like me, think like me, then you must be a heretic. This happens from the most extreme right to the most extre- extreme left. We are obsessed with certainty. And since we believe what is right, we cover our eyes and our ears to the Spirit of God to daily listen to how God might shape us into something new, into something different. So to hear, you must receive the kingdom as a child, how often do we reject this notion? Giving in to pride and certainty instead. But the kingdom of God must be received in faith and dependence. Burning Manning wrote, Becoming a little child meant becoming aware that all is a gift, that I am helpless and powerless to add a single inch to my spiritual stature. Without the subjective awareness or utter dependence, the personal consciousness of dynamism, outside of self at work in us, I seriously question whether anyone has made real progress in their spiritual faith. Faith is trust and dependence on God. It's tapping into the strength of God's ability. It's not being certain and right about everything. You see, the kingdom of God does not belong to those who are self-sufficient and self-certain, but to those who are believing, faithful, and trusting in God. Yet there's another significant aspect of Jesus' words about children that we often miss. When I was a child, there was a very important question that I needed to ask my parents. You see, in 1986, we were introduced to the Care Bears cartoon, these cute and cuddly bears that lived up in the clouds, and then they came down to help us helpful people and innocent people down in the world. So my profound question to my parents was this, 
If care bears live up there, then where does Jesus live? I know. Mind blown. That's a tough theological question to ask. If you've ever been around kids for five minutes, you know they ask questions. A lot of questions. Why aren't there dinosaurs anymore? Where do thoughts come from? Why do grown-ups sometimes cry when they're supposed to be happy? Who is the monster in my closet? Is the Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, Santa real? Why do we die? Where do we go when we die? What, why, where? What, why, where? What, why, where? What, why, where? Kids ask a lot of questions. You see, there's an aspect of Jesus saying we receive the kingdom of God that we often miss. It's that kids ask questions. Maybe Jesus is calling us not just to receive the faith of the kingdom of God and faith and dependence on God, but also being willing to ask really tough questions. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Jesus knew that kids asked a lot of questions. Yet why in the church do we often say to people, you can't ask that. That's not safe. A complex God demands complex questions about God and God's world and God's word. Do the ancient words of Scripture apply to us today? If so, all or parts of it? Does the Bible contradict itself? Why does the God in the Old Testament seem so different than the God we see in the compassion of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? How can we believe that something can't scientifically be proven? Why does the Old Testament seem so misogynistic and patriarchal? Is Paul a sexist? Is God all-powerful? Then why did God create the earth in six days anyways? Why not just speak it all into existence at one time? Is God male, female, both, or neither? We have been told that we should just believe, but God is complicated. Therefore, theology is complicated. Therefore, we must think critically about our faith. Where do we get the right to tell someone else that they cannot ask that question? Where do we gain the wisdom and arrogance to say that God is not so complicated that we can't ask complex questions about God? For Christmas, we bought the girls Lincoln Longs. Did you ever play with these as a kid? I think we've got a picture of them up there. First thing, these things are expensive nowadays, like $40 for a 130-piece set. Someone needs to tell the Lincoln Log company, you're making these out of wood, not like endangered elephant tusk. It's absurd how much these things cost. When the girls opened it, we sat down, we scattered the pieces everywhere, and we began to work on it by building things by the directions. And I was like a surgeon saying to the girls, hand me that one, hand me that one, hand me that one. And we got it all put together based on what the instructions told us to. And then Aubriana went into terror mode and destroyed it all. And you should see the indignation on my face. But I was quickly corrected by my seven-year-old, Daddy we can always build it again. In fact, why do we even have to build it by the directions in the first place? The Lincoln Logs gives us the freedom to build what we want. Maybe a, a prairie home like this, maybe the Dark Tower of Sauron, maybe Hogwarts, maybe a princess castle, maybe a fort, whatever we want to build. We were created by a God, a very complex God, an often indiscernible God who gives us the freedom to deconstruct and reconstruct our faith. I promise you, and you can condemn me as a heretic, but you wouldn't be the first, that you have permission to deconstruct and reconstruct your faith. 
God is a big enough God for us to take things apart and understand how they work and how they function. This is called deconstruction. And questions are necessary aspects of our faith. If you cannot question something, then it's called indoctrination, a forced belief. And the New Testament tells us that is the contrary to the invitation of Jesus. When we deconstruct our theology, it gives us the opportunity to take ownership of why we believe what we believe in the first place. When we can step out in faith, we are faithfully stepping out into what is uncertain, but we believe with full confidence that we will figure this thing out with God. Richard Rohr writes, The presumption for anyone with a dualistic mind is that if you criticize something, you don't love it. Wise people, like the prophets, would say the opposite. The Hebrew prophets were free to love their tradition and criticize it at the same time, which is a very rare art form. So as your pastor, I give you permission to ask questions. Ask the really tough ones. It's okay. However, don't go about this alone. We ask these tough questions in faith and community together. Because we can't deconstruct and reconstruct this thing on our own. Faith is not designed to be a solitary journey. We do this together, and in reconstructing and deconstructing, we're figuring this thing out together. And if it leads us to more questions, great. If it leads us to black and white answers, excellent. If it leads us into the gray, then we continue to ask those difficult questions together. As one author put it, as we sit here among the questions still unanswered and the path we must walk ahead, I pray for your journey as it unfolds into the unknown. I feel a bit out of sorts, but we all do. It's okay. Don't be afraid. UBC, we claim to be a faith community that says we think critically. Therefore, this is an invitation for us to continue to re-examine our theological assumptions about God, re-examine how God functions in the world, how we journey with God, how we journey together as the church and what God is calling us to in our lives. Jesus' invitation is to rethink our way of thinking and living. That's what the word repentance means. So I invite you to continue to think and to think deeply, to process a variety of perspectives and to come away with a more formed understanding of why you believe what you believe. And when you think that you've got it all figured out, remember you must receive the kingdom as a child So be more faithful and dependent while deconstructing and reconstructing with others. We live in a complex world created by a complex God. It requires that we think critically into who God is and how God would have us function together as a faith community. So I challenge you to never consider the rut and routine of just walking through the motions of talking about God, but challenge each other to dig deeper and deeper into our understanding, God. I challenge you to stretch and grow so that we might find ourselves not assuming what we know about our faith, but discovering it together. Do not hinder the children from coming to me, for unless you receive the kingdom as a child. In her beautiful work, Out of Sorts, Sarah Bessie writes, Set out, pilgrim. Set out into the freedom and the wandering. Find your people. God is much bigger, wilder, more generous, and more wonderful.